Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Intelligent Squad. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today we're bringing you some content from our premium monthly newsletter, The Monthly Read, which is usually reserved for our subscribers. The Monthly Read is a space for a member of the Intelligence Squad team to respond to a book, author or idea that has recently caught our attention. This month, producer Faye Adebita posed the question, is Thin back in? In response to our recent conversation with journalist Hadley Freeman on her experience of anorexia and the growing popularity of weight loss medications. In this episode, voiced by Faye, we're sharing the audio version to continue the conversation with our listeners. If you want to receive our full-length newsletter every month and stay on top of the latest conversations and big ideas, then subscribe to Intelligence Squared Premium today for ad-free listening, bonus podcast content, discounts on in-person tickets, and the full monthly read delivered straight to your inbox. All the details can be found in the show notes for this episode. If someone told you that they'd rather get cancer than be fat, how would you react? With confusion, repulsion, disbelief that someone would ever think that way? It sounds absurd, but it's not too far off the sentiment shared by a New Yorker in her 50s called Anna, interviewed for the online magazine The Cut, who's been using a drug called Manjaro to lose weight. Manjaro is similar to Ozempic. You might have heard of Ozempic. It's been increasingly referenced on social media and by news outlets due to its growing popularity among celebrities seeking to slim down. The FDA has warned that use of Ozempic has led to the development of thyroid tumours in rodents, and it can be dangerous for those who have, or have a history of, pancreatitis or a certain type of thyroid cancer. For Anna, the New Yorker in her 50s, that's a risk worth taking. She confesses to driving an hour into New Jersey to find a pharmacy that stocked the drug. If they said it's an increased chance of lung cancer, I wouldn't take it, Anna says. I mean, this is so humiliating, but I'm like, thyroid cancer's not that bad? That may seem pretty shocking, but I don't think the underlying instinct that motivates Anna is particularly rare. I'm Faye Adebita, a producer at Intelligence Squared. Recently, I've come across an array of stories both in the wider media and on Intelligence Squared, that focus on our bodies and their place in society, what they look like, what we put in them, and how they're judged by the world. I want to talk about these ideas today, mainly through the lens of two topics, Ozempic and its depiction as a miracle cure for obesity, and journalist Hadley Freeman's account of her agonizing experience with anorexia, which we featured on the podcast last Friday. In doing so, maybe I'll get a little closer to understanding the views of people like Anna. 
First, a quick explainer. Ozempic is often used as a catch-all for a range of different drugs called GLP-1 receptor agonists. These drugs mimic the hormone glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1, which naturally occurs when we eat food. The effects are numerous. It reduces appetite, slows the digestion of food so you stay fuller for longer, stimulates insulin production, and thus regulates blood sugar. This makes it an ideal treatment for type 2 diabetes, which is actually currently the only use for Ozempic that is FDA approved. However, many doctors in the US make no attempt to hide the fact that they've been prescribing Ozempic for patients seeking to lose weight, and other GLP-1 drugs such as Wagovi and Manjaro have received the all-clear to be marketed as anti-obesity drugs. In February of this year, the UK followed suit, with the NHS permitting the use of semaglutide, the active ingredient in all these medications for certain groups of people with obesity. Food critic Jay Rayner was quick to poo-poo the idea of using them, believing a reduced appetite would lead to a different sense of self. But it has undeniably helped some people. In response to Rayner's article, one commenter noted, I'm one of the people taking this drug, and for me, it's been a godsend. Absolutely each to their own, but what I've found is that it's quietened the food voice in my head. Imagine living with a critical parent nagging at you every day about what you should eat or shouldn't eat. With semaglutide, that's gone. After nearly 40 years of that noise, I now have much more space in my head for the things that really matter. Some people's lives have been characterised by an endless struggle with food. Semaglutide can stop that. For those for whom overeating has never been an issue... The lack of control over one's appetite that plagues those predisposed to obesity looks more like laziness or gluttony than what is often a more complex mix of genetics, biological factors, habit and deeply rooted social influences. In a New Yorker article on the rise of Ozempic, writer Gia Tolentino cites the experience of a semaglutide user that reveals the vast knowledge gap between these two groups. All I can say, a member of an online group called Lose the Fat wrote, is that it is no wonder that skinny people think heavy people have no willpower. Their brains actually do tell them to stop eating. I had no idea. With GLP-1 drugs, the voice inside your head that tells you to stop eating is turned on sooner and louder and to great effect. Studies show that use of these new drugs results in initial weight loss of 15 to 20% in patients. Meanwhile, previous pharmaceutical treatments have contributed to weight loss of only 5 to 10%. The ability to help millions of people lose weight and as a result reduce rates of heart disease, strokes, type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure means that these drugs have the potential to be literal lifesavers. But to take Ozempic and its associated drugs as a completely catch-free panacea would be a mistake. There are well-documented side effects such as nausea, vomiting and fatigue and we'll probably become aware of further side effects once the drug is used more widely. Studies have shown that once patients cease using semaglutide within a year, they regain most of the weight they'd lost while taking the drug. During a recent Intelligence Squared event, Henry Dimbleby, co-founder of Leon Restaurants and former food advisor to the British government, also highlighted a common criticism of not just GLP-1 drugs, but many recent diets and quick weight loss methods. They failed to fix the underlying problem of poor food systems and structural health inequalities. Ozempic may help people lose weight, but they'll remain at risk of diet-related illness as long as they continue to eat predominantly nutrient-poor, ultra-processed foods where over 50% of the UK's calories come from. So far, I've been thinking about Ozempic as a tool for health-related weight loss, 
And despite the drawbacks I've just mentioned now, I can recognise how it could be a vital tool for people who have found losing weight a punishing task using other methods. What I find unnerving is its use by people who aspire to an extremely slim body type that only a small percentage of the population possesses naturally. It's an open secret that semaglutide has become rife in Hollywood and New York and San Francisco. While only a few celebrities, such as Elon Musk, have openly admitted to using the drug, a wealth of people in the creative and media industries have confessed, off the record, to trying it. Contemporary artist Joel Mesler told The Cut he would come into New York City and every time he would see old friends, they were half the size. Ozempic was the word on everyone's lips. And the stats add up. Komodo Health, a firm that tracks healthcare data for 330 million patient files, notes a dramatic uptick in people with no prior record of diabetes receiving these drugs, a fourfold increase in California alone. Ozempic has been available since 2017, but the drug's adoption by the rich and famous has granted it a certain prestige, akin to an oversubscribed wellness retreat or limited edition designer handbag. Where has this deification of a thin body come from? We know that beauty standards have fluctuated widely throughout history, and also that so-called universal beauty standards derive from Western ideals. Renaissance painter Botticelli made Venus de Milo his era's poster girl, with her rounded curves and soft flesh, and the Victorians squeezed themselves into rib-cracking corsets to achieve a 22-inch waist. In recent years, the most lusted-after body type has been epitomised by that most divisive of celebrities, Kim Kardashian. Fans have risked getting pulmonary embolisms to get Brazilian butt lifts to imitate her hourglass figure, or if they couldn't afford plastic surgery, have carried out endless squats instead. Then suddenly, without warning, Kim began to embody a new ideal. The woman who became famous for her butt was now rebranding without it. She claimed to have lost 16 pounds in three weeks to fit into a dress worn by Marilyn Monroe for the 2022 Met Gala, and her Instagram post scented her small frame and lithe limbs. Finn was back in once again. Tell everyone, because see, I know the process it took to get in this. Tell everyone the process of this whole entire situation. Yes, well, this is Marilyn Monroe's dress. I tried it on and it didn't fit me. And so I looked at them and I said, give me like three weeks. And I, I had to lose 16 pounds down today to, to be able to fit this. But I, it was such a challenge. It was like a roll. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Trends repeat themselves, and in recent years, it's felt like the cycle's been spinning faster than ever. A recent article from fashion publication Dazed highlights the return of the harrowing chic aesthetic of the 90s, which glorified jutting hip bones and under-eye circles. Y2K, the nickname given to fashion trends inspired by the noughties, is currently having its day in the sun. Juicy couture and thigh-grazing micro-miniskirts have been rehabilitated. We've barely left the 2010s but a resurgence in so-called indie sleaze has revived the era of ripped tights, messy eyeliner and band t-shirts. What unites all these trends, and specifically the way they're being referenced today, is that the unattainably thin bodies that model the clothes are as much a part of the outfit as the cut-out dress or midriff bearing top. Delicate wrists and protruding clavicles have become accessories in and of themselves. For many, Achieving these looks requires a form of extreme dieting or disordered eating. Still, simply laying eating disorders at the door of the fashion industry undermines the complex reasons why people may restrict eating. Journalist Hadley Freeman came to Intelligence Squared recently to discuss her latest book, Good Girls, in which she details her years battling anorexia, which involved nine admissions to psychiatric hospitals and life-threatening weight loss. In her eyes, it's incredibly insulting to reduce the causes of anorexia to a trend like heroin chic. I find it incredibly insulting when people say things like that. And it just really shows a certain kind of misogyny in society because anorexia is, is suffered very largely by women. So this attitude that it's just silly girls wanting to look like fashion models just shows how low respect is for girls and women. You know, no one says that alcoholism is caused by beer adverts. You know, alcoholism is suffered you know by many, many men. And no one would demean it in that kind of way, saying, oh, you've just watched too many Heineken adverts. Freeman ties anorexia to deeper-rooted psychological issues that turn the logic of the sufferer's universe inside out, leading them to believe that losing weight and restricting food is in their best interest. In Freeman's view, losing weight was a way for her to stave off her impending womanhood and its accompanying trials and tribulations. Anorexia becomes a physical manifestation of female anxiety, representing anger at the outside world or a need for control. 
girls and women know that, you know, the first thing people see when, when people look at girls and women is, is how they look. So therefore the loudest way they can communicate something is through their body. So a lot of girls and women are scared of articulating bad quote unquote feelings, you know, cause they're supposed to be good little girls. They're supposed to be people pleasers. So the way they articulate them is through their body. That's why the vast majority of anorexics are female. Good Girls is a harrowing account of a dangerous, complicated affliction and gives much needed insight into the day-to-day experience of someone suffering from anorexia. But in her attempt to explain the disorder and to move it away from claims of frivolity because of its pervasiveness amongst teenage girls, I believe Freeman minimises the role of the media and popular culture. She includes an anecdote of when her anorexia began, aged 14. During a PE class, she turned to her friend, a girl she describes as having stick-thin legs, and asked whether she finds it difficult to buy clothes. Yeah, the friend replied. I wish I was normal, like you. This simple exchange set Freeman off on a trail of obsessive thoughts about calorie intake and relentless exercising. What Freeman herself admits is that she aspired to be thin because she aspired to feel like a somebody. Who told her classmate that being a healthy weight meant being normal? From where did she infer that being thin makes you special? Surely from the world around her. The TV shows whose main characters were all slim and attractive. The magazines that shouted out diet tips. And even from the fictional villains of her childhood. From Ursula to the Queen of Hearts. Who stood out not only because of their wickedness, but due to their size. Come in. Come in, my child. We mustn't lurk in doorways. It's rude. One might question your upbringing. (laughs) Now, then, you're here because you have a thing for this human, this uh, prince fellow. Not that I blame you. He is quite a catch, isn't he? (laughs) So, why talk about those empic craze and anorexia in the same breath? The former appears to be the latest in a series of trends that the media promotes to make us feel bad about ourselves. And the other is a disease with complex origins and, despite decades of research and treatment, the mental illness with the highest mortality rate. But I would argue that both these phenomena are connected to thin supremacy. In a review of Good Girls, the writer Megan Nolan uses this expression, stressing how culture's saturation with the ideal thin body is loud and inescapable from the time we're toddlers. Thin supremacy is a provocative phrase, but I think it speaks to the way weight and body size are often aligned with morality or virtue and how thinness grants certain societal privileges. A Harvard study, drawing on data from the implicit association test, which asks people to sort words and images into good and bad categories, found that implicit bias against fat people actually grew from 2007 to 2016, with 81% of people exhibiting it by the end of the study compared to 75% at the start. Every other implicit bias in the study regarding race, gender, sexual orientation, age, and disability waned during that period. In other words, we're becoming more tolerant of just about everything, except weight. On that point, we're becoming nastier. In the cut article on Ozempic, which I've referenced throughout this podcast, a source who uses the miracle drug puts it best. We don't talk about it, but everybody knows it. 
Thin is power. Ultimately, this value system, one that aligns thin with good and fat with bad, is not helpful for people of any size. Associating obesity with moral laziness is not an effective way to help people achieve healthiness. Shame will not encourage people to adopt healthier lifestyles. Similarly, a culture that idealises underweight bodies will continue to contribute to the prevalence of eating disorders and mental illness. Tackling this will require a shift in narrative, one that focuses on health as the goal, as opposed to any one particular body shape or size. Structural change is sorely needed too. Robust healthcare, especially in early childhood, better public education about diet, reform of our food systems to ensure healthy food is cheap and accessible to all, and local sports facilities and public spaces that allow everyone to engage in regular exercise. If we can find a way to prioritise these interventions, we may be able to find ourselves in a society populated by healthier and happier people, but also, crucially, one that doesn't reduce an individual to a number on a scale or the circumference of their waist. Thanks for listening to the Intelligence Square podcast. This episode was written and hosted by Faye Adebita, with production and editing from me, Catherine Hughes. If you have thoughts about the popularity of drugs like Azampic, then get in touch at editors at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events, or peruse over 20 years from our back catalogue, featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com.